There are certain events that will take place in your life or have taken place in your life that change everything. Things that happen to you or around you that change everything. And typically those are not pleasant things. Now I can think of one pleasant thing that when I got married it changed everything <laughs> for the good. Uh, it, it just in a, in a moment and in time as well. But a lot of times we have something happen to us or around us with our family. It could be the loss of a loved one. I think that may be the biggest one that I think of. And I think of Barbara and the loss of Phil, how it changes for her everything. For her friends, it changes many things. But for a spouse, it changes everything. You find out you have cancer. <clears throat> it can change everything. Your house burns down in a fire. It changes everything. You lose your job. You lose your ability to work. It changes everything. And I think that as we go through life, <clears throat> we we try to deal with these things. And the Apostle Paul is, as he writes this letter, is writing to real people with real problems, dealing with real stuff. Because while we have those major things, loss of a loved one, losing your job, house burning down, finding out you have cancer, we have a thousand lesser things, don't we, that do impact our daily life. There is nothing that will affect your life in a greater way than the resurrection of Jesus. And this is in a positive way. Nothing in all of life will have a greater impact and change everything than the resurrection. And so that's why I get excited about preaching this message. Because with all the stuff going on that's negative happening in the world in Ukraine, uh, you see those burned buildings, what we've been through in Louisville, what we've been through with COVID, losing loved ones this last year. The resurrection gives us hope and resolution for all of it, even the lesser things. <laughs> even little things like my, my knee is bad, I can't walk as well. <laughs> you know, aging and that sort of thing. The resurrection should impact your way of thinking and your way of living more than anything else. And so this is what Paul is writing. And I, and I, I love going through this because it, it gives such hope and encouragement. He spent a lot of time getting after them <laughs> because of their, the way they're living. Now he is kind of turning a corner and just giving them hope and encouragement as they're to look forward. So the resurrection changes everything. And we'll see it in this text what Scott read through from verse 20 to 34 in three ways. It changes your identity, who you are, how you identify yourself. It changes your authority. Who governs your life? Who's in charge? And it changes your responsibility. What do I do with my life? How do I live my life out? So first of all, it, and I've talked a lot about this, 
because I think this is so important, how you view God, his identity, is going to determine how you view yourself. How, how do you, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And uh, many of you have been to the carnival before, and, uh, you know, you walk through the mirrors, and that is you, by the way. It is you. When you look in there, that is you. <laughs> but it is distorted you. Now, sometimes it's pretty good because it has that slumming effect for those of us that <laughs> kind of use that. But typically it makes us laugh because there is a distortion of reality. There is no perfect mirror. There is no perfect mirror. You know how we always say, you know, when you take pictures, they always make you look heavier than you are. <laughs> I don't know about that. <clears throat> it sounds good to me. For the Christian, the only perfect mirror for reality of your life is God's Word. The Scriptures. It is perfectly clear. And so your identity is important because it will determine how you live your life. And the resurrection does change who you are. A lot of people today will change uh, who they are to what they like to be perce perceived. Um, Photoshop it or write up something or what we call, you know, managing your image. But in reality, God will completely, through the resurrection of his son, completely change your identity. Listen to what he says in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, for as in, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. I love the way the ESV translates this, but in fact, <laughs> but in fact. See, they had, some of them were saying, there is no resurrection. You know, when you die, you just die. And Paul is combating that because a wrong way of thinking is, is going to lead to a wrong way of living, what he had been dealing with. But he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We talked about this being important, not just so much for the doctrine of the church. You know, we could talk about our, our this is our doctrinal statement. Uh, and doctrine is important, but, but Paul's focus here is not so much having the right creed or the right doctrinal statement for your church. He's concerned about how you live. This resurrection should impact your life. And in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If you remember, we, we gave three evidences of that. One was words, the scripture. Two was witnesses. And those are the testimonies of those who saw Christ after he was resurrected. And then, and then finally, works. 
the, the transforming power to change people's lives. And that's what you read about in the book of Acts. We've seen throughout the last 2,000 years, people's lives radically changed. There is no other explanation than the resurrection. So when we talk about who you are, he's going to talk about two men. And both of these, as a believer, you're related to. Adam and Christ. Both of them are the first fruits. So when he says first fruits, more of an agricultural term. So when you're planting a field and you harvest that field, the first uh, gathering of the harvest is the first fruits, the first taste of it. So these two men are the first of much more or of many others. So the first one is mentioned, Adam. And Adam, all of us are related. If you do your um, Ancestry.com, it should go back to Adam. And now most of them, you know, you say, well, they'll go back to a certain, certain date, but it will go back to Adam. And all of us are related to the first created man and woman when they came together. Now, not everybody believes that. Uh, but we believe God, we believe he has spoken, and we believe the evidence backs this up. So what does it mean to be in Adam? Well, in Adam, everyone dies. <laughs> in Adam, we all died. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So where did sin start? Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, two things happened. Okay, you've got sin and you have death. Those are the two things that we have not been able, humanly speaking, to resolve. And you can't ever resolve. You can't wash away your sin. Once you've sinned, you can't, you can't undo it. And you're going to die. Everyone is going to die. So thanks to great, 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 great grandfather. <laughs> but I think that when we, we think about it, we're really sinners in two ways. People don't like to hear it, but they know it's true. If I were to say, are you a sinner? And say, oh, no, I've never. Most people are not going to do that. Because <laughs> there's too many others around that are going to point things out. <laughs> Remember one Christian guy told me one time, he's a preacher. He said, I haven't sinned in six months. I said, well, you just did. <laughs> now I'm thinking, it doesn't, take, it doesn't take most of us five minutes to sin. If you consider sin to be anything that is less than perfection. But I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner in two ways. One, we call it original sin. You were born with it. It was passed on to you. And that's exactly what that text says. In Adam, so Adam sinned, and we inherited a sinful nature. Or we would call that your bent. You have a natural bent to do evil. <laughs> Now, when I first saw our latest granddaughter, I thought, here's an exception. <laughs> because Sylvie was just like, she always smiled. She never cried. I thought, 
there's a theological exception here. <laughs> but we went back this last time and found out that, you know, she's starting, she's walking around now, and she has self-will. How about that? <laughs> Even the best of your kids and grandkids have an inherited nature. So, and this is what David said in, in Psalm 139. He said, in sin, my mother conceived me. It doesn't mean that his parents were being immoral, no, but when, when the, the seed came to the egg and he, he became a human life, and he talks about that in Psalm 139, it's a beautiful passage on being formed in the inner parts of the woman. He says, in sin, my mother conceived me. So I'm, the seed from Adam is inherently wicked, evil, and is going to die. So... We also have active sin, choices we make. So I inherited it from my dad, and uh, he inherited it from his dad, and his dad back to Adam. So I was born with sin. I'm a sinner. But I've also chosen to sin, and I repeatedly do that. And you know what I find? That the older you get, the less you sin. I'm joking. <laughs> now, honestly, that's kind of what I used to think. I thought, you know what? If I read my Bible every day and I pray and I do the right thing, I'm going to learn so much about God, about the right thing, not even want to do evil. So, you know, living the Christian life and having a strong faith and believing God is always at work, it's just going to be a lot easier. Well, for me, that's not true. As I think I shared with you, my conversation with my dad before he passed away at 87, he said, you know, Matt, he said, I find that the battle with sin and the flesh is as strong now as it's ever been, if not more so. Well, thanks, Dad. That's a huge <laughs> encouragement. But here's the, here's the hopeful part. This is not forever. This war with sin is not forever, but every day you get up, you're going to battle that old nature. And, and it's like when I read through the scriptures, it still rips me up. It still convicts me. It still exposes. It, it still shows me things I really don't want to see about myself. So I'm reminded, I don't need to be convinced that I'm a sinner, inherited and active in sin. So we are in all of us, he uses the word all, all of us in Adam, every person ever born, every seed ever formed with an embryo is in Adam. But then he uses the word all in Christ. <laughs> this is not all in the world that have ever been born, but all those who have put their faith in Christ and believed upon him as Savior. And all of us in Christ, Christ was the first fruits of life, whereas Adam was the first fruits of death. So Adam, sin and death, Christ, forgiveness, and resurrected life. And we are in Christ. So what's that going to mean? He made us alive by his resurrection. This is why in Galatians 2.20, one of 
our favorite verses is I, he, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, you talk about two men. In Adam, we're sinners and we're dying. And we, we feel that every day. We feel the effects of sin, its pain, its, its heartache, its difficulty. We feel the pain of sin. And we experience the sorrow of death almost every day. Just this last week, we had a neighbor across the street uh, pass away. So we're always experiencing this. But Jesus Christ is how we identify ourselves. No longer just in Adam, but in the new life in Christ. This is my identity. He is my father. Jesus is my savior. This is who I am, a child of God. This is how we need to see ourselves. So I ask you, how do you identify yourself? Now, I could tell you how I should identify myself, but typically, I'm, I'm always comparing myself to others. How do I fit in? How do I fit in with other people at work? How do I fit in with other people in the community? How, you're all, we're always comparing with fallen humanity. But he has been raised. And he says in verse 23, each has ra been raised in its own order. So what does it mean each has been raised, resurrection, in its own order. And I know we could digress to, to places <laughs> would take too long to talk about, but let me just kind of give a picture of what's next on the calendar. Jesus said to his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will receive you to myself. The next event on the calendar is his coming again. Now I ask you, are you ready for that? Are you looking forward to that? I hope you're looking forward to that. Because when you are really looking forward to that, it keeps everything, all the stuff, the hurt, the pain, all these loss of loved ones, sickness, burned down homes, loss of jobs, it, it keeps that in perspective. It doesn't make it go away. We still live in the, in the sense of fallen Adam world. So Christians still go through all the same, when that, when that fire swept through Louisville, it didn't say, oh, you're not a Christian. Or, you're not. It didn't do that. Or people that get cancer. And so, we look forward to him coming again. He's promised. And it could happen before I finish the sermon. Wouldn't that be great? Now, I know some of you are thinking, man, I'd like to few more things. I can imagine, you know, the guy that's getting married tomorrow, probably not going to be excited about 
the rapture of the church today. <laughs> but that's because we have such a, a uh, human view of things. There's one reason why he delays. Peter tells us there's one reason why he doesn't come today. And it's because there's still people out there, you have family, you have friends, who he loves that he wants to believe. It's, it's, it's his mercy. You say he'd be more merciful if he just came today and we'd be done with it. But he's merciful, big picture, long term for everyone. It says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. So, next event, he's coming again, and we will be caught up to be with him in the air. That's going to be pretty exciting. We, all of us who are living, are caught up to be with him in the air. And then those who are already in heaven, talking like people like Phil, <laughs> will come with him. Their bodies, say, what's going to, I talked about wherever your body is, could be scattered about, vaporized or cremated, it doesn't matter. Their bodies will meet them and they'll be given new bodies. Then we will, there's going to be a time of judgment called seven years of tribulation. I know there's a lot of people like to detail this out. I'm just trying to give you a big picture. It'll be seven years of tribulation and then a thousand year reign where Christ is president, he is king, he is emperor, he rules the world. Now you think about that. If, if Christ is in charge for a thousand years and Satan is bound, he's bound up for a thousand years. He can't do anything. And we start off with believers. Why? We're going to have a, after a thousand years, we'll be doing pretty well. <laughs> Even without the devil around, the world continues to follow that pattern. At the end of the thousand years, uh, all things will be brought together. We will have a new heaven and a new earth. Beyond our imagination of how spectacular, how glorious, how beautiful, how wonderful. And we're not going to be floating around on clouds strumming harps. We're going to be actively engaged in work that matters, work we love, praising God, interacting with one another. So the resurrection is going to change your identity. It's also going to change your authority. Who's in charge of your life? You say, well, I am. <laughs> and I think we have these two competing kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And I think we need to work really hard when we get up in the morning to acknowledge he is king and lord and master. And this is what we, we read about in the Gospels. But listen to this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians as we work into this passage in verse 24. It says, then comes the end. And this means the culmination of all, of all things. There will be an end. When he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected to put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Here it is, that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. That is the supreme and chief end of all existence, is that God be all in all. The glory and the majesty of God through the working of his son, Christ. Then comes the end. He has fulfilled the work of redemption and salvation. Remember we talked about, I talk about this many times, but I think it's really important. I think repetition helps. The three tenses of your salvation. When you say, I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior. I think most of you have done that. I don't ever want to take that for granted because some people are still working through it. There are three tenses. Saved, this happened in my past. When I saved, I, I became a child of God and he gave me eternal life. Nothing can take that away. I am a Christian forever. My sins are washed away forever, all of my sins. I have a home in heaven. Nothing can change that. I have been saved. Present part of salvation is that I'm being saved. You say, now, now you're confusing me. <laughs> no, I am being, in, in the word justification is point in time. Sanctification is a process of growth. That's just what it means. I am growing every day. So I'm in the Word, I'm praying, I'm, I'm obeying, I'm sinning, <laughs> confessing, repenting, growing. My life is being changed, instantly changed in my position. I am being changed in my practice. My daily living is becoming less and less like Matt, more and more like Jesus. And that should be true of all of us. Let me stop here and meddle a little bit. Some of you have stagnated. Are you with me? Whew. Man, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. You've learned a lot about the Bible. You've grown a lot, but now you're coasting. So when we get to this third point, you're going to see where I'm going with this because he doesn't want us coasting while we're here. So, been saved, being saved, and then the third part is ultimately and permanently saved. So you go from the position to the practice to the permanence of salvation is complete. You're in heaven where there's no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, no death. Everything is wonderful and salvation is complete. And you are like Christ. You can't sin. <laughs> so... This is, this is all of his working in us. Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father. In other words, all, all of his control he fulfills to the Father. And I love this whole part about submitting because Christ submitted to God when God sent him on a rescue mission. God sent his son. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God had a plan of rescue. And he sends him to deliver this kingdom, and he says, he must reign. He must reign. Now, 
the reigning begins in the heart. Just like when you go to Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus is saying, this is how you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So the kingdom he's talking about first and foremost is your heart. Who's ruling your heart? That's what Jesus is talking about. But seek first the kingdom of God, verse 33 of chapter 6. Seek first his kingdom, and all these things, all the stuff will be added to you. You make him first, you recognize he's Lord and Master. So first place is your heart. Then one day, you know, we always argue, if we had this president or that president, it'd make everything better. If we got all the right judges in place, <laughs> you know what, it, it, it's... You can put all the best people, pick all the people you want. It, we're still going down. Just a matter about how much time and in what way. So presently in our hearts, the millennial kingdom, until he puts all enemies under his feet. Kings would typically step on the throat, step on the chest, um, put their subjects that they've defeated in front of them, um, do horrible things to them. And the last enemy that Jesus Christ will destroy is death. Forever. Forever. That God may be all in all. So, this is the power to change everything. Your identity, you're a new person, you're a Christ child. Your authority, he governs your life. He is your king, master, and lord. He rules your life. That's not just a one-time submission. That is a daily reckoning. I can tell you this, that every morning I get up, you know who I want to be in charge of my life? Me. And I'll ask God for help if I need it. I'm just being honest with you. I get up. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going I'm to live my life out and call on him if I need it. It, it takes work and labor to submit my life to his authority and say, God, whatever you have for me, whatever you have, I see it as good. And I will embrace it, and I will follow that. So the final power of this resurrection changing everything is our responsibility, what we do. Now, last time I talked, we had, we've had some tough ones to understand. So we got another one here. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? So, that's verse 29. <clears throat> there are a lot of different views on this. And I don't think that any of them like, are, are critical that we get this exactly right. But I'm going to explain what I, I think this is talking about. And remember, you always interpret Scripture with Scripture. So what we don't know or understand, we interpret what we do know and understand. But let me finish reading this. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by the pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, I, humanly speaking, I fought beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. 
I say this to your shame. Now, he, he kind of ends with some strong words. If there is no resurrection of the dead, why are people being baptized for the dead? Have you ever heard of that before, being baptized for the dead? Well, the Mormons practice this. I think that oftentimes what this most, and, and what this, I'm not going to go through all what it doesn't mean. Let me tell you what I, I feel it's saying is that when people have a weak faith, they're not in the Word, they're not studying the Word, they're not obeying the Word, they come up with a lot of ideas about how to do their religion. <laughs> and you see that everywhere. And we are famous for making up rules and little exception clauses. I think this, that this church was practice, practicing baptizing, getting baptized for people who are already dead and gone, hoping that that, because they didn't get it done before they died, hoping that that would help them in eternal life. <laughs> well, we know that's not true. That's not, that's not the way this works. And what he's saying is if you practice that, it shows me that you do believe in a resurrection because if you're getting baptized for someone who's gone, gone ahead, you're saying you don't believe in the resurrection, resurrection you're actually doing it. That, that's, that's what I think he's saying. If there is no resurrection, why do we put ourselves in danger every hour? And he talks about why would we be fighting beasts in Ephesus? And if you read through the book of Acts of Paul's experience in Ephesus, now there were wild beasts, um, literally wild beasts, so it could refer to that. Um, but I think usually those were between cities, <laughs> not in the city. And Ephesus, I mean, Paul was beaten and tortured and stoned and put in prison so many times. So what he's saying is that if, if there was no resurrection, why in the world would we put ourselves in harm's way? Why, why would we sacrifice? Why, why would we take this? And to me, it's such a great point. If, if we did not believe in a resurrection or heaven or a future life, then hey, you know what? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the way the world lives. You know what? When you die, they bury you, it's over. So you know what? I'm going to drink all I can, eat all I can, have all the fun I can have, have and do what I want to do. But Paul is saying there is something beyond this. Why would we be subjected to all of this pain, all of the you look at Paul's life, it was he describes it as joyous, yet he suffered so much. But he suffered for what mattered eternally. And no one could even come close to understanding the joy that he's probably experiencing today because of what was accomplished with the gospel. That's why he wrote Philippians. We have something to live for, folks. We have something to suffer for. We have something to die for. So anything we might complain about the loss of anything on this earth is pale in comparison to what awaits us. That should motivate me. Keep the eternal perspective. Keep looking at what he is saying about the resurrection changes everything. That's the difference for the believer. 
So he says this, do not be deceived. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up from your drunken stupor. Now I think actually on this drunken part, it was both physical drunkenness, because I think they were very careless in Corinth about their living. God always condemns drunkenness. But I think the, the drunken stupor is their spiritual, not, not just a physical thing going on in Corinth, but their spiritual condition. A, a drunken stupor, he says, stop sinning. I say this to your shame. And then he gives two, two reasons for this. How did you get so shameful, so sleepy, so drunk, how did you do this? One, he says, bad company. Bad company. Now, what this doesn't mean is that you don't spend time with unbelievers. Because Jesus did that. But he did that purposefully. I think that he surrounded himself with disciples who were encouraging one another. So it doesn't mean we, we, we pull ourselves out of the world and hold up until Jesus comes. You know, we, we live in this world. But there are some friends that you have, some things you watch, some things you do, the company that is not moving you forward. And pretty much you can ask yourself, is this relationship moving me forward or is it moving you backwards? And in the Corinthians, we use this word Corinthianized had become so worldly. They had become so just like the rest of unbelievers because they're so concerned about the popular culture and being accepted and doing things like everyone else that they had lost their distinctiveness. They had lost their uniqueness. We talked about that about love. They didn't have love. And then some have no knowledge of God. No knowledge of God. So... I come to knowledge of God by reading his word, talking to God about what he's teaching me, obeying God's word, repenting when I sin, following him, gathering with good company. Okay, this is kind of an example of good company. And he'll tell us many times, don't, don't forsake that. You need to meet together to encourage one another in this good company. And because of that, they have no knowledge of God and they falter. So back to the positive thesis of this as I wrap it up. The resurrection of Christ more than any event in history changes everything. All of the negative events that have impacted your life on this earth, the resurrection overcomes. Think about it. Everything burned up, every sickness, every disease, every death, every life-altering circumstance that you've ever been through the big ones and the real little ones that just kind of mount up and make you want to go crazy, the resurrection changes everything. It changes your identity, who you are. You don't see yourself as a son of Adam. You see yourself as a son of Christ. It changes your authority. You're not governed by self-will. You're governed by Christ. And your responsibility, this is how I live. <laughs> I live in this way in the way of following Christ, being willing to suffer because I see 
what lies ahead for eternity. Folks, my prayer, I, I get so excited about studying this, I, I just because I feel like when we get this, it changes our whole uh, frame of reference in life. It, it gives us encouragement for one another. And when we go through the trials, which we will continue to go through, we accept them as coming from God and working for something greater. So let's embrace his encouraging words. And we're, we're not done with chapter 15, by the way. So uh, there's more that he has to say. What it's going to be like with that new body? You ever thought about that? We'll talk about that coming up. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We've needed it because all around us we see life-changing events that are negative and hurtful and hard to overcome. But help us to think back to this greatest life-changing event where the resurrection changed everything. Help us to embrace who we are, who governs our lives, and Father, how we live them out. And we look forward to the day when we see you coming. In Jesus' name, amen.